Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Conway Hall on behalf of the Nuremberg Bookshop and uh, Penguin Random House UK. Um, I bet you're all very excited and can't wait uh, for this to start. Just wanted to check, how many of you out there know someone in your family who before or during the Second World War was evacuated out of a city? Can you put your hands up? Isn't that interesting? How many of those people were your great-grandparents? Yes, okay. Okay, well, without further ado, uh, let's give a big, warm welcome to Jacqueline Wilson. Hello everybody, it's lovely to be here and before I forget, happy birthday to Jasmine Joseph who is nine today and also thank you very much Yachi for your lovely picture and I'm so glad you like my books, so there we go, bless you. Um, I'm, I'm very excited today to be talking about Wave Me Goodbye because I try hard with all my books, but I think this one I tried even harder. And um, it's so lovely for me nowadays to be talking about each of my books as they come out because right from when I was a small girl, it was my ambition to be a writer and the very thought of ever getting even one book published, it would just have been beyond my wildest dreams. Now, I wonder, is anybody here a, a potential writer? Who likes writing stories here? Let's have a peer. Oh, quite a lot of hands are going up. I, I think it often goes hand in glove with being a keen reader. And probably, if you are here today, unless you're some little brother that's been told, no, come along, your sister wants to go and see Jacqueline Wilson, you've got to come too, and never mind about the big match at Wembley or, or whatever. So, um, so I love reading, but I loved writing too. And I think even before I could read for myself, I, I, we didn't come from a, a very wealthy home, I didn't have many books at all, and my mum and dad were quite busy and really didn't particularly want to read to me um, very much apart from, say, a, a quick story at bedtime, I would look at the pictures in books, and if I couldn't remember the story, the real story, I would actually make up my own stories to the pictures. And um, I often think how much, as a child, I would have liked Nick Sharrett's illustrations because they're, they're very evocative, they look surprisingly simple, and yet when you try and copy them, um, they're really quite sophisticated. And I often think, I mean, if, you, if your mum and or dad or whoever looks after you, if you're lucky enough to get a copy of the book, the, the paper is quite good quality, wonderful to colour in, if your mum and dad don't mind you doing it. I used to love colouring in the illustrations of my books. And, and so, right throughout my childhood, I was writing my own stories. And um, whenever... You know the way adults, when they really don't know what to say to you when you're a child, and after they've asked how old you are, they might try and think of something else to say, and then they might say, so, what do you want to be when you're grown up? And I always used to answer shyly, a writer. But then sometimes um, people on the estate where we lived thought I was being silly and showing off. So I, I soon learned to kept my, keep my writing ambitions to myself. And my other thing I wanted to be was a hairdresser. And, and um, I used to, I loved dolls, but I always wanted long-haired dolls so I could brush their hair. And, um, and my dolls, after many, many sessions at Jacqueline's own hair salon, they started to go bald, poor thing. So, 
Um, I, perhaps I would have had that effect on my clients if I'd actually been a hairdresser, but, but still. So my biggest but became secret ambition was to be a writer. Um, my mum and dad thought this a rather silly idea. They were far more in favour of the hairdressing idea because, um, you know, children like me didn't really even stay on very long at school. They didn't go to university in those days, and certainly they didn't become writers. And at school, at my primary school, that was okay. We had really nice teachers at my primary school, and there was one particular teacher in year five, Mr. Townsend, who was an absolute sweetheart, and he seemed to make it his mission that every single child in his class, and in those days there were quite a lot of us in a class, it was up to 50 in a class, um, but he tried to make every child feel special and as if they had one particular gift. Now, it was quite simple with a lot of them because they would be sporty, say, and he could praise their sport, or they were artistic, or they had very neat handwriting. Um, I think possibly he might have been a bit hard-pressed to think of my very special gift initially because I certainly wasn't a sporty girl. Um, I was quite popular at school because I sometimes write about children that get picked on a lot. People always seem to think, you know, I was this poor, sad, teased child. I mean, I went through a bit of teasing at times, but mostly I was okay. But my friends always let me down when it came to any sporting session and they had to pick teams because I couldn't catch a ball, couldn't throw a ball, couldn't run fast. So basically, they'd pick their worst enemy for a team rather than me. And I was always the child left till last. And I was okay at some school subjects, but I was always humiliatingly bottom of the class at maths. I just couldn't do any kind of sum, <coughs> which was very upsetting for my father, who worked in an accounts office and you know, found any kind of maths very easy-peasy. So he would keep an eye on me when I was doing my maths homework, and I would try and hide it from him, but he'd sort of winkle me out and say, you've got maths again, haven't you? Um, let me see what you've been doing. And then I've been spending ages trying to do particular sums and crossing them all out and starting again. And nearly always, I still came to the wrong answer. And my dad would get very cross with me and said, look, only last week I showed you how to do long division or fractions or whatever it was. And then he'd say, well, I'd better show you all over again. And I'd say, promise you won't get cross with me. And he'd say, promise you won't cry. And then 10 minutes later, he'd be shouting like anything and I'd be in tears. So never ever did I learn to do maths properly. Uh, thank goodness for calculators nowadays. Um, and so I didn't shine in year five, but one time when we were set an English composition, as it was called then, in our equivalent of lit the literacy R, um, there must have been something I'd, I'd written that he liked. And after that time, it was always, oh, Jackie, Jackie's the one that writes the good stories. And so one time when he'd given us all a lovely new shiny notebook and said, you can use this for any special project you like, expecting us to write about our favorite hobbies, say, I did shyly ask him, could I write a novel, please, Mr. Townsend? And he didn't laugh at me. He said, what a good idea. Yes, you write your novel. And so somewhere in some publicity pages, it actually says that I wrote my first novel when I was nine. It doesn't say that it was about 15 pages long and not really any good whatsoever, but I did enjoy writing it. And Mr. Townsend was very kind to me and said that, you know, he, he thoroughly loved reading it. And I've still got it tucked away somewhere. And it, it's interesting in a way because 
It's like a very mini childish version of the sort of books I write now, in that it was about a family with money troubles and problems, and there was a teenage girl who kept staying out late with her boyfriend, and there was a very bookish girl with glasses, and there was a girl who um, loved to act and had long plaits, and then there was another girl who was a bit of a show-off with sort of wild curly hair, and then another shy little boy who got teased. And if, if you know lots of my books, these are tiny versions of some of the characters I wrote about many years later. And so this, this was my idea of heaven, to write these sorts of stories. And then when I went on to my secondary school, who here is about to go to secondary school in September? Is anybody? Oh, yeah, one or two hands. It's a big moment in your life, isn't it? And um, if, if, particularly if, like me, you don't many, know many children going to your secondary school, it can be a bit unnerving. And people often tell you sort of scary stories about what the older kids might do to you. Probably it will be wonderful for you. But you can't help being a little bit anxious about it. And I certainly was. And during the summer holidays, I made several bus trips just to make sure, because I have no sense of direction whatsoever, that I could get to the school when I got off the bus stop and had to find the school. And I would stare at this big building, empty, because it was the summer holidays, and think, this is my new school now. And I, I had this mad idea that I would somehow become a brand new person, and that suddenly I'd be a sporty girl, and I knew I'd be playing hockey and netball, and I thought maybe I could get the hang of them. And then I thought perhaps the maths we do, suddenly something will happen inside my head, it will all become clear to me. And, you know, I had all these mad fantasies. Well, after a week at the new school, I had made a best friend, and that, that was wonderful, but I realised that I was still going to be useless at sport. Um, hockey and netball were even worse than any rounders or anything I'd done at my primary school. And again, I was bottom of the class at maths. But actually, the worst thing of all, I had been really quite confident and happy about the thought of proper English lessons at secondary school. I didn't seem to be able to write anymore. Now, I don't know what it's like nowadays in secondary schools, but when I was there, English was divided into two subjects. It was English language and English literature. And for both of these, we had the same teacher, Miss Pierce. Um, a rather glamorous lady, but older now, and quite strict. Not the sort of teacher you would ever dare be cheeky to. But I listened in absolute delight to the first literature lesson, because although I loved reading so much, I didn't really know much about classic books. I knew they were long, and, and the text was very dense, and I hadn't really tried any of these books. But she said that whilst we were at the school, she wanted us to know all these different authors and to enjoy all these different books. And although some of the girls in my class were sort of raising their eyebrows and mouthing boring at each other, I was thinking, wow, I'm earnestly writing down all these new names and resolving to go to the library as soon as I could and try and get some of these books out. So I felt her, she, she really knew what she was doing. She was absolutely inspirational to me. But then, when we had our English language lesson, um, Initially, I was thrilled. She started telling us about the techniques of writing a good English composition. And she did say, it's a bit like a string of pearls. And you start here, and that's your first paragraph. And then it leads on to this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. And then by the time you get back to the clasp, that sort of winds it all up. And I actually think that's the most excellent advice to do with writing. And um, 
um, particularly for an essay, but in a way, it still works when you try to write the plot of a book. You have one bit leading all the way on to another bit until you get back full circle, and it's, it's a satisfying feeling. And so when she set us our first English essay, I very much had this picture in my mind, and I thought I must start at a certain point and get it all the way round back again. And I tried so hard. The moment I came home from school, um, didn't even bother with a snack or a drink, just sat down with my new English essay book and wrote and wrote and wrote all the way through till bedtime. And I, I have to say, I was really pleased with myself. I thought, I've made a big effort. Hopefully, um, she'll give me a really good mark. And so we handed our English essays in the next morning, and she was a very hard-working teacher. And by the time we had our next English language lesson, she had all our essays properly marked. And as she gave them out to all the girls in the class, she'd already memorized all our names and knew a bit about us. Every now and then, she felt somebody had made a really big effort. She'd murmur, well done, so-and-so, or you good effort, so-and-so. So I sat there, waiting for her to give me my English essay book back. And again, the mad fantasies started. Miss Pierce leaning forward, confiding in my ear, well done, Jacqueline. <gasps> what a joy it was to read your essay. I can see you're a born writer. I am going to so enjoy reading your work. Hmm. She gave me my essay back, just put it on my desk and walked off no comment whatsoever. So I opened it up and looked at the, at the end of the essay, and she'd given me a really bad mark. And all the way through my essay, she had scribbled all over it with that red teacher's marking pen. And yes, I did have spelling mistakes. I wasn't really a great speller in those days. Um, but much more well, upsettingly, there were various comments in the margin. Um, many, many times she'd written the word slang or colloquial. And basically, I had written the essay the way I talk, in a very informal, chatty sort of way. Whereas she was looking for something you know, of, of textbook standard. Uh, with lots of description, which those of you that know my books well, there's little bits of description, but mostly it's the characters speaking and doing all sorts of things. And I, I try and put the words together in different ways, interesting ways, but they're not the sort of standard ways that an English teacher of the old type of school would appreciate. And at the bottom, you know, she'd she put um, that the, some of this material is not suitable, Jacqueline, and um, seemed very disapproving of, of the whole thing that I had done for her. And I felt so cast down, because I thought, if this teacher, who knows so much about literature, thinks that my essay is completely hopeless, then maybe all these years of hoping that I'd be a writer are just going to be for nothing, and they won't come true. Now, I think, if Miss Pierce were still alive, and I met her and shyly gave her a signed copy of one of my books, well, she'd open it up. She'd probably um, be polite and thank me very much. And she'd read maybe the first few sentences. And then I think her hand would itch. She'd want that red pen back. She'd still be writing slang and colloquial and you know, inappropriate. Because I have got a very distinctive style. And thank goodness it works in my children's books. But I wasn't the sort of English essay writer that she could ever approve of. And so consequently, um, she didn't give me any encouragement whatsoever to be a writer. And um, I, don't, I don't know what she thought I would ever do. Um, I know my mum was determined 
that I had what she, would, she called an office job. She didn't want me to work in a factory. She didn't want me to work in a shop. She visualized me of, of one of these women in a, in a sort of smart suit and high heels taking dictation from their boss. Um, I was certainly not a girl like that whatsoever, but in those long ago days, often if your mum told you to do something, you did it. So I went to the local technical college and did learn how to be a secretary and realised, nope, I don't want to be a secretary and I'm not going to be very good at it. But I had to earn a living when I'd finished the, the year's course. And so... In those days, there was the London Evening Standard, which is now the freebie newspaper that you're given. And to this day, it still does have a few situations vacant at, on the back pages. Well, I think it does. I must check. But certainly, um, in those days, back in the 1960s, there was page after page after page of secretarial jobs because computers hadn't been properly invented then. And so no, no sort of boss or anybody in charge of anybody ever dreamt dreamt of doing their own typing, they had to have young women typing away for them. I didn't want to do that, and I was looking through all these different job adverts, feeling more and more depressed. When I came across an advert that was a bit different, it said, wanted teenage writers. And I thought, well, I'm a teenager, I was just 17 then, and I thought, I want to be a writer. So I wrote off to the box office number, and quite soon in the post, I got an information pack to say that the Scottish magazine and newspaper publishers, DC Thompson's, who published lots of Scottish newspapers, lots of women's magazines, lots of children's comics like the Beano, and they had decided that the following year, they were going to publish the first full-color teenage magazine. And they wanted to amass heaps and heaps of short stories and articles before the magazine was actually launched. So I thought, this is my big chance. My mum and dad had just given me a little portable typewriter um, for my 17th birthday, and I thought, right, I will type them a story. Now, they'd asked for a romantic story, but the one sort of writing I'd never tried and never really cared for was those very sort of serious lovey-dovey books where, you know, the girl looks up into the hero's eyes and just thinks he's the bee's knees and, uh, and they walk off into the sunset together. No, didn't like that sort of story at all. So perhaps rather arrogantly, I decided to write them the sort of story that I like a funny story, but a kind of emotional story too. So I wrote a rather autobiographical story about a girl going to her first big posh dance and how it's great fun beforehand because you and your friends show each other what you're going to wear, practice work, walking in your high heels, do each other's makeup, all the rest of it. And then when you get to this big hall with a live band where the dance is being held, you eye up all the boys, and they eye up you, and you wonder what's going to happen. And then I think maybe every other woman, older woman, say, in, in the world, has had the experience of no matter whatever it is, and you feel you're looking your best, but everybody else gets asked up to dance but you don't yourself. And in those days, you didn't have the common sense to get up and just dance by yourself or with another girl. You just had to stand there looking sad and lonely, the girl that nobody wants to dance with. So part of my story was about what you do in this situation and how it's a useful tip to wander over to the band and pretend you're, say, the girlfriend of the drummer. And then it would be perfectly legitimate for you to stand there and tap your foot and go like that and everything. <laughs> and, or, or you could wave at somebody right at the back of the room and you don't know anybody there and, and then go rushing across and 
go and hide in the ladies for 10 minutes and come back again. So it was full of all these daft ideas and how actually at the end, when, when you go home, <clears throat> your mum's sitting up waiting to hear how you got on and you tell a few fibs and say you had a wonderful time and all these boys ask for your phone number and everything and then you actually hide under your bedclothes and have a little weep and think life is going to be over forever for you. Um, and it's not. And the next time you go, you have a wonderful time, but still. Um, and somebody, I think, at the publishers must have had a similar sort of experience because within a few days, I got a letter back. They didn't send the story back. They wanted to keep the story. They wanted to buy it. And again, I was so naive. I didn't realize you got paid if, if a short story appeared in a magazine. Mind you, they were only going to pay me three pounds, which even in the 1960s wasn't actually a lot of money. But I don't think I've ever earned any money since. It has meant so much to me. Because it meant that somebody had faith in me and, and felt that I actually could write. And so I bombarded them with stories, which rather amused them. This, this girl living just outside London, writing away every week. So they offered me a job up in Dundee in Scotland on the magazine. Now, I didn't know anybody in Scotland. It was a big step. My mum said I could only go if I promised to stay in a girls' hostel because she thought, rightly, that there would probably be quite a strict matron involved. She didn't want me running wild without her keeping an eye on me. And um, so I went all the way to Dundee. Um, I lived in the girls' hostel, which actually was a very good tip because it was a way of making friends with lots of other girls. And I think my two years working for DC Thompson's were some of the most fun years of my life. Um, I learned so much working for all the magazines. Um, I did do a lot more stories for the Teenage Magazine, which, when it came out, uh, the two gentlemen in charge of all the women's magazines said that they'd named it after me. So if any mum or granny in the room remembers Jackie Magazine, I'm the Jackie <laughs> that inspired the title. And I've worked on all sorts of other magazines too. I even, by the time I'd just turned 18, I was given my own mother and baby column in a woman's magazine. I'd never even held a baby. <laughs> had no idea what you did with them, but I'd sort of read up the baby care books. I talked to women in the street who had prams or dragging toddlers along and managed to do it. And, and then there was another magazine where we had the front, lots and lots of readers' letters, but actually we rarely got any readers' letters, and so it was my job as the youngest journalist to do all these different readers' letters every week, which, when you think about it, was very good training for making up new characters and writing in different styles. And I became so good at it that the editor decided that it, it would be fun if I could write a horoscope top column too. You know, a what the stars foretell. And I didn't know anything about astrology. I didn't consult any star charts. Um, I made it all up. And so I'm born on December the 17th, which makes me Sagittarius. So when I was writing the column, I was naughty enough to say that all Sagittarians were going to meet tall, dark, handsome strangers. They were going to come into lots of money. They were going to do brilliantly in their careers. I carried on week after week. Nobody ever realized what game I was playing. But um, I found it delightful to do. And I'm really, really lucky in that lots of my mad predictions actually did come true for me. Um, the one thing that I would never predict is that after all this long time, I still have a wonderful association with DC Thompson's because now, how, how many of you read the Jacqueline Wilson magazine? Hands up? Yes? 
that's absolutely great, because I'm so delighted that, I don't know how, about three years, four years, the magazine has been going, and, um, you know, it's a lovely way that I can keep in touch with my readers, and they can have all sorts of exclusives about my books and my life, and my pets, even. My, my dog, Jackson, and my cat, Jacob, figure rather a lot in the magazine as well. So that's lovely. Um, the, the one thing that I longed for that I thought was too specific to go in the horoscope column was what I wanted more than anything in the world was not just to do magazine journalism, but also to get a book published. And it meant the whole world to me when I was in my early 20s and my first book actually came out. And then I wrote and wrote and wrote, but not a lot of people had actually heard of me particularly, and um, my books didn't sell in vast quantities at all, until I suppose the first book of mine that really took off, which was also the, the first book that lovely Nick Sharrett, my, my dear friend, illustrated for me, and that was the story of Tracy Beaker. And then... Then things got a bit better, and after the long-running television series started up, things went absolutely wonderfully. And, um, and really, since then, it's just been fantastic for me. I still write lots and lots and lots. Um, in fact, I think Wave Me Goodbye is my 106th book now, but it's still um, a joy to me to write. Now, for a long time, my name was associated with very modern, contemporary books, and that's what I like to do. And it hadn't really occurred to me to, to write any historical books. And I, well, I flirted a little bit with the idea of writing about the Victorians in a book called The Lottie Project, but that was mostly set today. But then I became involved with the wonderful Foundling Museum, which is two minutes' walk away from here, if any of you care to have a little trip there after this event. And, um, and they, they were lovely to me. They made me a special quorum fellow, which meant that I worked with the museum and um, did some events like this. And the then director, Rian Harris, did say to me, of course, what we'd really like you to do is to write a book about a foundling. Um, and I thought about this. I knew Jamila Gavin had written Quorum Boy, but that was about a boy in the 18th century. So I thought, well, could I write about a girl then? And what about the late 19th century, which is the sort of time that I'm most interested in? And I thought, well, why don't I have a go? And almost immediately, um, this, this little, fiery, red-haired child just bounced into my head. And I thought, what am I going to call her? I'm going to call her Hetty Feather. And I thought this was a really good, quirky sort of name, a name that, that nobody else could ever have in the world, a name like Tracy Beaker. Um, about two or three months after the first Hetty Feather book came out, I got a furious letter from a lady up north saying, how dare you steal my name? And she signed it, Hetty Feather. And I, I had to um, write back to her and try to explain that I had no idea that there was actual, actually a real Hetty Feather around. And um, I did say I hoped she wouldn't mind too much. I tried to explain that I'd used Hetty because it was a, a Victorian name and a name, well, my best friend from school, both her mother and her grandmother had been called Hetty. In actual fact, my friend Chris was very glad she hadn't been called Hetty, but there we go. And then because I wanted this child to be a very little, slight child, um, I have one of the fierce matrons at the hospital say, oh, she's light as a feather. And so they always re renamed the, the founding children when they would taken into the hospital, so she's called Hetty Feather. And um, 
And I was so touched that when it came out, I thought some of my special loyal fans would say, oh, no, we don't like historical books. No, we, we, we think you'd much, we'd much sooner you stick to modern books. Actually, Hetty became really, really popular. And to my great delight, there's now been five Hetty books, Hetty Feather, uh, Sapphire Battersea, Emerald Star, Diamond, which is meant to be written by Diamond, but it's about Hetty too, and Little Stars. Um, Hetty fans might like to know that this November, there's another book about Hetty coming out called Hetty Feathers Christmas. I've just seen the cover for it, done by Nick, and it's absolutely fantastic. There's been a play about Hetty Feather, which is coming on again uh, this Christmas, appropriately enough. And there's been a lovely children's television series. How many of you have watched Hetty Feather on, on the telly? Ah, that's smashing. And some of the set from the television version of Hetty Feather is actually now at the Foundling Museum. There's a special exhibition all about Hetty, and there's lots of photos of the children who played the parts in the television series. There's lots of genuine um, things about actual, real Victorian foundlings. There's the actual school desk, so you can play around and pretend to be Hetty and her friends. There are the costumes from the television set, so you can try on and be Hetty or, or a boy like Gideon or any of the other boys. There's so many different things to do, so that, um, you know, it, it's a sort of like a, a Hetty fest as such. And I discovered that I love writing about different periods of history. And so um, I've touched on the Edwardians with Opal Plumstead. I've written about the 1950s in Queenie. But I was starting to think I have to write about the Second World War. And I have to write about the whole subject of evacuees. And, right, when in 1939 it looked as if there was going to be a huge and scary world war, everybody was very frightened about the bombing and, um, and particularly about being gassed. And so everybody was issued with a gas mask so you wouldn't breathe in all the poisonous fumes. Even babies had gas masks. And they look, I mean, they're a bit uncomfy to wear, but they're, they're perfectly okay. They're to keep you safe. But I don't know if anybody saw a, a while ago a Doctor Who episode where a, a child wore a gas mask. They are seriously creepy. They really, really are. So it seemed to me... I mean, I was always interested in hearing about what it was like in the Second World War. But the bit that really got to me was in big cities that were likely to be bombed, and especially London, and I'm a London girl and it's dear to me, so many hundreds of thousands of children at the very start of the war were evacuated, that, that weird word means simply sent away from their own homes, and wait for it, sent away from their mums and dads, and had to go away with their different schools by train to a place of safety in the country where they didn't think there would be any bombs. And the weird thing was the children didn't know where they were going. They just were told, you're going to the country for a little holiday, just for the duration of the war. And people thought, this was at the very beginning of September 1939, and people thought that the war would be over by Christmas. Little did we know. Now, imagine how you'd feel if this had to happen to you. And imagine how your mum and dad would feel. And yet the government said this had to be done. There were big posters saying, Mother, send your child to the country. And you were considered not a good parent if you didn't do it. 
Now, some parents thought, well, blow this, I'm keeping my kids with me, we're just going to stick together. But many, many, many other parents thought, no, I really want to protect my children, so they'll send them off to the country. And you are only allowed a suitcase, a small suitcase, and children were supposed to go off in sensible shoes and sensible um, girls would wear, say, a jumper and a skirt with a jacket for country life. Well, my girl Shirley, she has other ideas and her mum has other ideas too. Mum put Shirley in a Farrow jumper, which in those days, that was the really classy thing that you dressed your child in. Although I speak from experience, they were very itchy, so she's not very comfy. And then, if you can see on the cover, she's wearing red shoes, red patent shoes. And they're already a bit too small for her. But Shirley loves her shoes, and Shirley's mum wants her to look smart. So, she isn't kitted out with very sensible things. In her suitcase, she's meant to have one change of clothes, and they put Shirley's best dress, her kind of party frock in. Again, not a sensible idea. And then as well as washing things and night things, children were allowed one toy or something precious from home. And um, so many kids now would say, right, I have to have my tablet. I, I have to, um, you know, have my current electronic device. I have to have my mobile phone. No, none of these things were invented then. So children chose different toys, but I think the one kind of toy that children in 1939 might take and children from now might take would be the cuddly toy that you take to bed with you. And in actual fact, I expect, how, how many of you take a cuddly toy to bed with you? Yeah, yeah. Hands are going sort of halfway up. Will anybody tease me? Um, but um, I, I think it's very important, would be, to have something that reminds you of home. But then a far worse dilemma for me and for my girl Shirley, who's very similar to me, um, you were only allowed to take one book. Now... If you're a bookworm, the idea of one book just for a long train journey that could take anything up to 12 hours, what is the point of that? You'd have read your book twice or three times by the end of the journey. But to know, actually, that you're going to be staying away, well, the children thought for months, and for some of them, it was several years, um, absolutely awful. How on earth would you manage? And so my Shirley, who's a little bit of a rebel, cheats, and she puts her ten favourite books into the suitcase and consequently can hardly drag it along with her. So she sets off not very well prepared. And this book isn't just about Shirley and girls, although Shirley does meet a very special convent girl, Jessica, on the train, and they find they have a great deal in common and they share the same rather wicked sense of humour. But there are also two very important boys in the book. And um, one of the boys is Shirley's age, you know, nearly 11, and he's called Kevin. And he's one of these boys that's suddenly grown up almost too quickly. So he's all sort of wrists and all ankles. His clothes don't fit him. And he's an awkward boy. He mucks around a lot. He's silly. He's the sort of boy that if he were in your class at school, your teachers would say, oh, for goodness sake, Kevin, calm down. And um, so he, he's a nervous, anxious sort of boy, but kind of funny, kind of could be good fun too. And then there's little Archie, and he's only about five, and he's had a really tough time. He's been in and out of care, and somewhere along the way, he's picked up some infestation in his hair. So when he's evacuated, his foster mum has shaved his head. So he's this plain, skinny little creature with bald head. So you have my Shirley, who's in totally inappropriate clothing. We have Kevin, 
who's all, all sort of skinny and awkward and mucking around. And we have little Archie, who, when he arrives in the countryside, he's lived in the east end of London all his life, never seen a cow, and he sees these weird creatures that moo at him, and he's terrified and runs away. Um, so these children are probably not going to be first pick for the villagers, because this is what happened. These children weren't... Nowadays, I think, if such an extraordinary thing would happen, each child's personality and background would be well-documented, and then they'd try and fit the children with the right sort of family for them. Well, this didn't happen at all. All the children who were evacuated, you went with your school, so you had a teacher sort of supposedly supervising you. And then when you got to the other end in the country, you were generally herded into some village hall, and you had to sit there. You were given, I don't know, a mug of milk and some sandwiches or an ice bun, something like that. And then the villagers would go in, and they were all told, right, you have to take two children. Take your pick. Now imagine, imagine if we're all children in a village hall and then these people just walk amongst us and say, well, that girl's quite pretty, we'll have her. Or that boy looks strong, he could help out on the farm. And then this carries on and carries on and you might sit up at first and smile and look hopeful, but then after a bit you slump and you feel so sad. It would be so much worse than waiting in a dance hall wanting a boy to come up and ask you to dance because what is going to happen if you're not picked? So, for purposes of my plot, Shirley, Kevin and little Archie are not picked. But there's a... You know these village ladies who sort of are very good-hearted souls but a bit bossy. She's in charge of the whole thing. So she rounds them up with a few other waifs and strays and says, don't you worry, I'll find you a home. And so she gathers them all up together and by the end of that evening, the children have all got foster homes and indeed Shirley and Kevin and Archie are all living in this house on a hill in a country village. But it's a strange house. It's got lots of books in it, which Shirley likes. But the, and, and that sitting room where the lady of the house is, is, is beautifully furnished. And she's got a beautiful bedroom. But a lot of the other rooms in the house are completely empty. And there's one room that's locked. And so it's a kind of mystery story too. And I won't explain it because I hope you might want to read and find out for yourself. And, um, and Shirley, who at first really doesn't care for either of the boys very much, actually finds she's got a lot in common with them and makes friends with them. And although it's very lonely and scary some of the time, and school during the Second World War was no picnic, teachers were allowed to hit you whenever they wanted to then, and um, it was very primitive compared with now, but there were these three children living in fantastic countryside with huge grounds to play in and you could play all sorts of exciting games. And Shirley does manage to meet up with Jessica, the girl she likes so much, on the train. So there are really scary things that happen, but really great things that happen too. And then, well, I won't say what does happen, but I promise you there is a happy ending. Not, not one of my almost happy endings, but an actual happy ending. And if any valiant dads, I can't quite see from here, are in the audience and who get a bit irritated because somebody pointed out to me, sometimes the dads aren't portrayed in a really wonderful, positive way. Um, this dad... Shirley's dad comes up trumps. He is a sweetheart. I really love Shirley's dad. He doesn't seem too promising at first, but you wait. He is special. They're, and I've got so fond of all these characters that they really, they really feel 
absolutely as if they've had that life. And, you know, I sometimes have been wondering, you know, would Shirley still be alive now? She'd be in her 80s, but she could well be. Um, and goodness knows what's happened with Kevin and little Archie. It would be fun, in a way, to, to sort of put them... If I was writing a very modern book but also say a child went to visit some people in um, an old people's home, say, we might have a very elderly Shirley with her head in a book, and um, Kevin being a very awkward, funny old man, and little Archie, now what would he be doing? I don't know. Perhaps he would have got really fond of animals by this time and be tending some some pet in the old people's home, something like that. So you never know, maybe as a, as a little jokey extra story, maybe in the magazine um, one time I could write that and find out exactly what happens next to them all. But what is going to happen next to us, let me just check the time, yes, very good timing, um, it's time for questions. So. If you'd like, if it, perhaps we could have the lights up just, just a little bit so we could see all of you. And um, John is going to be very kind and pick you because I'm not too great at seeing who's who. How do you decide what the title's going to be? Oh, the titles are always difficult. Um, with Wave Me Goodbye, um, First of all, it was going to be called A Little Holiday because that's what Shirley's mum told her she was going on. She doesn't tell her the whole truth. And indeed, lots of children were going, um, going off and their parents weren't being entirely truthful with them and told them they were going on holiday. And in fact, in some of the photographs of evacuated children, you see they're clutching their buckets and spades as if they really think they're going to the seaside, which is so sad. Um, but my editor pointed out rightly that if you don't know what the book's about, a little holiday, it isn't really a buzzy sort of title. And then... So I, I kept trying to find the right sort of title. And then I came across this Vera Lynn, um, who was a lady who is still alive now, and she's at least 100. But she sang one very popular, well, she sang many popular songs during the world war. And she sang um, the, um, the uh, White Cliffs of Dover, um, which everybody sang. But in 1939, she sang, and if I didn't have a voice like a frog, I'd sing it for you, Wish Me Luck As You Wave Me Goodbye. And I thought, Wave Me Goodbye, and Nickers Strawn Shirley Waving Goodbye seemed a good title. And thank goodness the editor and the other people at the publisher said, yep, that's the title for you. Um... Um, when the children get picked in the village hall, what if it's an odd number of children? Because you said they take two children each. They do indeed take two children. Very, very well listened there. But Shirley, Kevin and Archie are the last three. And so basically the, the sort of busybody lady is so exhausted trekking the children around, she thinks, OK, I'm going to force these last three children on this unsuspecting lady who's got a really big house with lots of seemingly spare rooms, so she's jolly well going to have to have them. So that's how they end up together. What's your favourite word and why? My, my favourite what? Word? Favourite word? Word. Um, I quite like rainbow because it, it's quite an, a, a sort of melodic word to say, and I love rainbows. And um, it's just somehow it's still magical to me to, you know, when it's been raining and then you see a glimmer of sun and then you look up, and particularly when you see a whole entire rainbow, it's just beautiful. So, yeah, rainbow will do for me. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi. Um, I read quite a lot of your older books, not so much of the newer ones, but I was wondering what inspired you to write Love Lessons, because it, I guess it's quite controversial. It is quite controversial. It's about a girl who falls in love with her art teacher. And one time, a long time ago, I was on the radio on some book programme, 
And because I sometimes do write about slightly controversial things in children's books, um, the interviewer said to me, is there a subject that you wouldn't ever write about? And at that particular moment, there had been a case in the papers of a teacher who had become romantically involved with a pupil and, um, and to us it seems a very, very controversial subject. And I said, well, I don't think I would ever write about a situation like that. And um, another editor of mine was listening and said, hmm, I don't know. And apparently they'd had a discussion in the office and lots of these young women had had a big crush on a teacher at school. So I thought, well, I've got to be very careful how I do this. Um, and it's got to be just quite innocent. And nothing totally untoward actually happens. So I wrote love lessons, and um, adults loved love lessons, but I did get a lot of letters and emails from girls saying, but why didn't they run off together? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? And so I did joke one time, well, I'll, I'll write one relatively sensible, wholesome book for adults and another very naughty book for teenage girls, but that was just a joke. <laughs> What's your favourite book that you've written? I'm, I'm sorry, darling, can you say that again? What's your favourite book that you've written? My favourite book that I've written... Um, well, Wave Me Goodbye has to be my absolute favourite at the moment because it's my new baby. I'm very, very fond of Hetty Feather. And um, there are several books that I wrote a while ago that, that I like a lot. Um, I like double act about identical twins and, um, and I liked writing about Ruby and Garnet so much that in a relatively recent book, The Butterfly Club, about triplets, at the end of the book, you get to meet Ruby and Garnet as adults. I, I like playing around with my characters and making, suddenly coming across them grown up. So um, I might, might play these games with some of my other most popular characters. What inspired you to make Clover Moon? Um, I wanted to write another Victorian book, and indeed, I wanted Hetty to bob up in it, making a sort of little cameo appearance. But I thought it'd be quite interesting to write about a really unfortunate girl um, in a very bad slum alley and just show what life could really, really be like in, in Victorian times for a poor family. Um, and yet, Clover herself, she's still got a lot of spirit. And I love the idea. I love dolls. So I loved her making friends with this rather strange but delightful doll maker. And, um, and there were all sorts of different things that I'd found out a bit about Victorian times that um, fascinated me, so I wanted to put in all this detail. So I enjoyed writing about Clover Moon, but those of you who have read it will see it ends quite... It's not exactly abruptly. I hope it's a satisfying ending, but you might have sensed there's going to be more about this. And I'm currently writing a sort of sequel called Rose Rivers, which is about the girl that Clover meets right at the end of the book. So we're going to have Rose's story, but then halfway through the book, Clover herself pops up. And indeed, Hetty Feather, you can't stop her. She'll be in it too. So um, it's going to be um, a sort of omnibus book of my favourite Victorian girls. Who's your favourite character in one of your books and why? Um, I'm very fond of Dolphin in the illustrated mum. I think she needs looking after and a change of dress and, and a, be feeding up a bit. And in fact, the ideal companion for her, I could invite them both at once if they were real, would be a boy called Biscuits who's been in three of my books. And he's such a 
a, a sweet character. He's so good-hearted. He gets teased a bit. He doesn't mind in the slightest. He likes his food. He's going to eat it. And, um, and by the time you get to reading about him in Best Friends, you will discover that he's very good at making cakes. This is the wonderful thing about being a writer. You can write about children like um, Charlie in The Lottie Project and Biscuits, who both like making cakes. I love to eat cakes, but I'm not good at making them. But I can have my children make these wonderful, elaborate cakes, mouth-watering as I type away. And, um, and Biscuits, I think, would be so cheery. He'd cheer Dolphin up. If I was feeling down, he'd cheer me up too. And then every day at 4 o'clock, we'd sit down and eat a big slice of cake. That would be wonderful. When did you start your World War II? When, when did I start writing it? Do, do you mean, darling? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I was thinking about it for quite a while, but, um, oh, goodness me, sometime last year. I, I write quite quickly. You might think I take a long, long time if I say that Wave Me Goodbye probably took about six months to write because you could read this in a week, easy peasy. But it does take much, much longer if you're making it all up, writing it all out, and then going over it and writing it again. So um, there's Wave Me Goodbye coming out now, and I think, was it Clover Moon that was the last book? So that's two quite long books. So I have just... I'm writing Rose Rivers, which is, again, a long book. But in between that, I wrote Hetty Feathers Christmas, which is a short book. So I'm planning to do a much longer book and then slightly shorter book and, and see how we get on there. So as long as I can get my two books a year, that, that would be great. Okay. So we have three more questions. Yes. How many more books are you hoping to write? Have I what? Sorry? How many more books are you hoping oh, to Oh, how many more books? Do you know this is a loaded question? Because when people used to ask me how many books I was going to write, I would always say, well, it would be lovely if I could get to write 100 books. That would be my ultimate ambition. And then I'd joke, and then I'll keel over. Well, you've no idea how weird it was writing that 100th book, thinking, help, am I going to keel over any minute now? So I wrote the next book very quickly indeed. Um, so now I won't set myself a limit, but um, I don't know. I hope to keep writing as long as I possibly can. That's the wonderful thing. If you're a writer, as long as your mind still works properly and as long as children still want to read your books, you can carry on as long as you want. Um, there are two lovely ladies who I much admire in the world of children's books. Um, and love their books. My daughter loved their books. And they are still writing and illustrating, I can't illustrate, um, when they are quite a bit older than me. And one is lovely Judith Kerr, who wrote When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit, and also Tiger Who Came to Tea and the Mog Stories. And she's still going strong. In fact, she was actually number one in the bestseller list when Sainsbury's decided to do a, a whole advert using Mog the Cat. And then the other is Shirley Hughes, lovely Shirley, who's still, I don't know if any of you have ever met her, but she's smiling and sweet and she wears beautiful clothes and, you know, she writes um, about Dogger and um, Alfie. Alfie, Lucy and Tom, just her books just, and she's also written autobiographical books. She, she does so much, and indeed her own daughter is a wonderful illustrator too. But Judith and Shirley are examples to me. You can keep carrying on. How do you decide your character's personality? That is exactly the same as when maybe when you were younger, you made up sort of imaginary games, like maybe you had a particular doll or a teddy, 
And you'd sort of know immediately, oh, this teddy's going to be very mischievous. Or this teddy is going to be so naughty, he's going to push a toy rabbit over. And this doll is going to be very ladylike and keep needing a change of clothes. So when the four-year-old, five-year-old you is, is playing with her, you take her clothes off, you put them on again, you take them off, you put another outfit on. You don't consciously do it. You just know that's what they're going to be like. And so when you come to in, make up your stories, um, it's as if when, as soon as you think about them, you think, yep, this little foundling girl is going to be very spirited and she's going to be quite quick-tempered um, or um, this, this dolphin is going to be quite shy but very fierce when provoked. I mean, it, it's, just, it's just a game. You just make it up and they can be as, as good or as bad or as happy or as lonely as you want them to be. And, and you can change things for them. That's the magic of writing. They can be in a really sad place, and you can whisper to them, don't worry, I'm going to make it all turn out okay for you in the end. Right, in the last question now. Okay. How long, ha how long has Nick Sherat been illustrating your books? Ah, that, it must be about 27 years, because the very first book he illustrated for me was the story of Tracy Beaker. Um, because I knew with that book that I wanted lots and lots and lots of black and white illustrations, as if Tracy herself had been scribbling all over the, this story she was writing and doing all sorts of funny, jokey pictures. And I asked my editor then, please, do you know any illustrators that would like to do that? And he thought very carefully and actually came up with Nick. And it's just been the most perfect artistic partnership ever since. Um, it's such a delight for me because I get to see Nick's illustrations first, and he always gets it right. And I think the illustrations for Wave Me Goodbye are fantastic because he's so done his research properly. So it's almost as if you're sucked into 1939 and can see exactly what it's like. And sometimes Nick will even, you know, say to me, um, you, you have Shirley wearing something in this chapter, and yet she seems to be wearing something else, you know, just later on in the day. He acts like a wonderful editor to me. So it's a big treat for me. And not only that, Nick, Nick and I get on so well together. We were there at the Foundling Museum for the opening of the Hetty exhibition um, just last Thursday. And, you know, we always have a big hug. And we promised uh, we are, I am moving quite soon, and we are going to live much nearer to each other, which will be fine. And we can go and, and have a meal together. And we're both, we're both incredibly fond of cake, and we also love ice cream. So I think if you next see Nick and me, and we're a bit fatter, <laughs> that's why. Anyway, I'd, I'd just like to say what a lovely afternoon this has been for me. I hope you've enjoyed the afternoon too. Thank you so very much for coming. Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much. Um, there are quite a few copies of Wave Me Goodbye Outside, and um, all, they're all signed already. So if you haven't picked up a book, there are books outside. Thank you all very much for coming. Thanks for your questions. Have a safe journey home. Take care. <laughs>